work on getting the information out to farmers. So we kind of know what them what we want them to do, which is plant milkweed and protect the, the monarch butterflies from incidental pesticide exposure. So we have Farmers for Monarchs, which provides them all of the information that they need to implement those practices and to put habitat on their lands. Welcome to this episode of the Keynotes Podcast from the Keystone Policy Center. I'm your host, Marcus Chavez. Before we get to our episode, I do have to announce that we'll be taking a break from the podcast over the summer. But don't worry, we'll be back in the fall telling more incredible stories about the impact of collaborative action. Frankly, there are so many stories to tell that I'm confident in saying that we're only getting started. And with that in mind, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, I encourage you to please consider making a donation to Keystone to help keep it going. Just visit our website at keystone.org and click the donate button at the top of the page. Thank you. And now, on with today's episode. As I mentioned in our last episode, it's Pollinator Week which makes it an appropriate time to highlight Keystone's pollinator work. I certainly hope you were able to catch our last episode about the Honeybee Health Coalition and the work it is doing to support honeybee health and nutrition. And there's no doubt that while the honeybee is an unmistakable symbol of pollinator production, the species we are discussing today can best be described as iconic. I spent my entire childhood and teenage years through high school on a baseball diamond in southeast Idaho. The teams I played on often had to shovel the snow off the field in the early spring, and as I got older... I participated on teams that would sometimes play until the snow came back in the late fall. I couldn't even begin to count the number of baseball practices I had in my youth, which is why being able to remember certain events at those practices more than 25 years later is rare. But there is one instance from when I was 12 or 13 years old that I have never forgotten. My team was practicing on what was one of the worst ball fields in my hometown. It was located near the church I attended, and clearly we were only there because we did not have access to one of the better fields maintained by the city. Anyway, at this one particular practice, I remember being out in the field when we were suddenly bombarded by a horde of monarch butterflies. I mean, we were completely engulfed by thousands of them. Obviously, practice stopped, and we just stood in the midst of them as they flew over and around us for the next several minutes. I don't recall any of them actually stopping or landing on us, nor do I recall which way they were flying. But I do remember, even as a clueless young boy, I could recognize the beauty that I was witnessing on that day. In fact, I remember keeping an eye out at practices in the years that followed for another monarch migration, but that was a one-time experience for me. And given the precipitous decline in monarch populations that has occurred in the decades since that time, witnessing a migration like that is even more rare today. The annual migration of monarch butterflies is one of the world's great natural phenomena. The eastern monarch butterfly departs from its overwintering site in Mexico up through the central and eastern United States to Canada and back. These journeys span from four to five generations of the butterfly, meaning that the individuals that alight in Mexico are at least the great-grandchildren of those that did it before them. Breeding west of the Rockies, the western monarch butterfly annually migrates to overwinter in the wooded groves along the California coast. Unfortunately, monarch populations are in an alarming decline. Wendy Caldwell, the executive director of Monarch Joint Venture, explains more. Over the last several a few decades, there have has been a clear downward trend. So even though there are those natural ups and downs, natural fluctuations in the population, um, the population has been declining in, in an overall capacity. And so a few years ago, back in 2013, 2014, the eastern population that overwinters in Mexico reached a point of being 
less than one hectare, 0 0.67 hectares um, of area occupied in Mexico, which is at or below the point where researchers feel that, you know, if some major weather event had happened at those overwintering sites, we could have lost the migration entirely. And, and so the population has reached really vulnerable levels that um, we need to ensure that we build the population to a consistently robust enough size, which is around six hectares, so that we can feel confident that they'll be able to weather those severe events. Just to clarify, monarch populations are measured not individually, but by the area of the forest they occupy in units known as hectares, which equals about 2.5 acres. Before one generation of monarch finishes its lifespan, it lays eggs to begin the next. As with other pollinators, there are numerous factors for the population decline, from incidental pesticide exposure to climate change to deforestation. But in the case of the monarch, the loss of milkweed ranks among the most critical concerns for monarch conservation because monarch butterflies only lay their eggs on milkweed, and their caterpillars eat nothing but milkweed. Monarchs need milkweed. Milkweed is the only host plant that their that monarch caterpillars can eat, and female monarch butterflies will lay their eggs on. And so even though we need milkweed in the context of diverse grassland habitat, um, it, it is really that milkweed host plant that monarchs require for their survival. And, and so without it, we wouldn't have monarchs. If you will allow, I want to quickly return to my story about witnessing a great monarch migration on the baseball field in Idaho. Because knowing what I know now about monarchs and the landscape of Idaho, my hometown never really seemed like a bastion of milkweed habitat. So I consulted my good friend Google to do some very basic research and see if it's possible that I just imagined the whole thing. Research from Robert Michael Pyle, a butterfly researcher, did indeed confirm that Idaho contains only patchy and low-density milkweed distributions, except for in one region of the state, the Snake River Plain in southern Idaho, which had a historical occurrence of dense stands of showy milkweed. That is exactly where I grew up, which may help explain why the monarchs migrated through my hometown. And given the agricultural hub that I grew up in, I mean, my home state is best known for farming potatoes, it helps me understand the critical role farmers can play in monarch conservation. Farmers are stewards of the land in in more ways than one. And so it's it's really critical that these farming ecosystems, farming landscapes are supporting agricultural production, but also supporting pollinators in in the roadside habitat, in the farmyard habitat, in, in, in the vacant um, properties and everywhere in between. And so our research in the monarch community um, really highlights the role of agriculture in pollinator conservation, in monarch conservation. Agriculture plays a pretty major role in, in successfully driving monarch populations forward. There's a lot of opportunity within those landscapes um, because they are high monarch production areas. Given the alarming declines in monarch butterfly populations, the Keystone Policy Center brought together a diverse group of committed stakeholders, including scientists, conservationists, farmers, and the private sector, to find collaborative solutions to strengthen monarch populations and habitat. The group was founded as the Monarch Collaborative in 2015, but just this week announced a renaming of the group as Farmers for Monarchs. I must note that I conducted most of these interviews before the name change was announced, so you will hear the coalition referred to by both names. 
Regardless of the name, the coalition leads ongoing efforts to develop collaborative strategies to promote and implement actions that will support monarchs in agricultural landscapes. Here's Matt Molika, Senior Project Director at the Keystone Policy Center, who leads the facilitation effort of Farmers for Monarchs. The Monarch Collaborative was founded in 2015 and sits at the intersection of agriculture and monarch butterfly conservation. It includes a really diverse membership uh, representing farmers and ranchers and landowners, businesses working along the agricultural supply chain. We have researchers and academic institutions that, that sit at the table, as well as federal and state entities sitting together with the NGO conservation organizations that work on monarch butterflies. So it's really a unique set of of actors that are all working on this problem together, um, knowing that the, um, you know, really where the rubber meets the road is is, uh, on our agricultural fields. Farmers for Monarchs shares with farmers the numerous resources available to them for monarch and pollinator conservation, like commercial seed providers, technical assistance, and information on incentive and cost-sharing programs. Wayne Fredericks, a corn and soybean farmer from Osage, Iowa, is one member of Farmers for Monarchs. He has been farming for nearly 50 years and started planting pollinator habitat on his land because it would actually enhance the profitability of his farm. Well, what got me interested in it was the, actually it was the profitability study that we did. Um, I saw a presentation, uh, uh, you know, on doing profitability analysis. And that simply is where you take uh, multiple years worth of yield maps and overlay them over over the top of each other. And then you do your, your cost uh, input into that situation. And, and, and you can find spots, sometimes 10 to 15% of some fields um, will inherently be a low profitability. Uh, and so you, you try to find maybe another option for those areas that um, could improve your bottom line. And, uh, for us, uh, it happened to coincide with that uh, uh, habitat initiative for monarchs. And so we put uh, most all of our acres into CP42, which is the government program for monarch habitat. And it definitely uh, improved our farmability, improved our profitability. Uh, it, it definitely improved the environment. Frederick's farm is adjacent to I-35, the interstate dubbed the Monarch Highway, because it runs along the migration corridor of the eastern monarch population, from Canada to Mexico, or vice versa, depending on which direction you are driving. But farmers aren't the only ones along the Monarch Highway getting involved in monarch conservation. And so when we talk about the Monarch Highway, it's, it's engagement, I think, of, of people that you know live along that path. And uh, it's not all just farmers. We get to a, a lot of cities and, and small small towns and so forth that all along that highway, um, it, it's the it's the people on the ground that uh, really can have engagement and in, in putting habitat uh, down in, in a lot of different places. You know, we can put habitat like I did here on rural agricultural land, and and, and people in, in urban areas can can put uh, habitat down in you know, grassways and backyards and, and flower beds and, uh, you know, urban settings and parks and so forth. They're just tremendous opportunities for places to put habitat. And so we like to engage in that conversation, um, you know, both with the farmers and, and both with the non-farm. 
The declining monarch population has the species under consideration to be listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. Last December, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that adding the monarch butterfly to the list of threatened and endangered species is warranted, but precluded by working on higher priority listing actions. This means the Fish and Wildlife Service added the monarch butterfly to the candidate list, and its status will be reviewed each year until it is no longer a candidate. Here's Matt to further explain why a listing decision on the monarch does not change the mission of Farmers for Monarchs, regardless of what that decision ultimately may be. Recently, the uh, monarch butterfly was uh, came up for a listing decision under the Endangered, Endangered Species Act, and it was decided that the, the species was warranted for inclusion, but precluded because of a number of other priorities. And so now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will be looking at the species every year and making a determination in 2024 about whether to to fully list it. Um, and so the the Monarch Collaborative um, has been you know, pretty, in my opinion, critical in getting them the information that they needed in terms of how much acreage is out there currently, how much is being added and at what pace, um, so they can get a handle on all of these private lands. How much Monarch habitat do we have and how much do we need? Um, so the collaborative has been, um, has been instrumental in getting them that information so that they can make a more informed decision. We actually don't take a position on whether the monarch should be listed or not. Uh, we have a really, you know, diverse, uh, uh, membership. We, uh, you know, don't try to come to consensus on big picture policy, um, but more concentrate on providing good information, being a resource for information and, uh, and providing that information out to, to farmers and landowners. While Farmers for Monarchs does focus on a particular audience, its general message overall is that we can all take steps to support monarch and pollinator habitat. From planting a pollinator garden to allowing wildflowers on your land to grow instead of just mowing them down. And in the case of Wendy Caldwell, she put these practices into action at her home and had amazing results. I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, um, and so, so my roots br brought me back to living in the agricultural landscape. You know, even though I'm not a farmer, I live essentially in the middle of a corn soybean rotation. And um, so in doing my part for conservation within the agricultural landscape, I'm continuously restoring different parts of my, my yard to pollinator habitat. Um, I've even convinced my husband to mow around some of the milkweed patches that are creeping in from on the, on the, margins of our land and so recently I went outside just for a, a break to you know kind of observe the habitats and I found um, 16 fifth in stars that's the biggest size you know the biggest stage of the, the monarch caterpillar on this little patch of maybe 20 milkweed stems just right on the edge of my yard and the edge of the cornfield and and so um, you know we don't often preach that like if you plant it they will come because populations are low and vulnerable so that doesn't always happen but I feel like I'm living evidence of the you know habitat within the agricultural context is extremely important because it creates that connectivity and those those places for pollinators to to find what they need and um, so so I always get super excited to go out and look at my milkweed plants and find these healthy big juicy caterpillars that um, are, have found my little patch of habitat 
in the agricultural context of Minnesota. I've been working at Keystone for just over two years now, and I consider myself fortunate that my work at times has me working on the Farmers for Monarch initiative. That work has me from time to time thinking about the experience I had as a kid on the baseball field all those years ago. I also think about how I don't think my own children have actually seen a monarch butterfly in the wild. And that does make me sad. But I am buoyed by the work being done by so many individuals and organizations across this country, committed to the mission of supporting our pollinators, planting nutritious forage near their homes and in their gardens, and following best practices that protects those species so crucial to our way of life. I see this work spreading across the world, and it gives me hope that those populations will return to prominence once again. Keynotes is a production of the Keystone Policy Center, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based out of Keystone, Colorado, which for more than 45 years has empowered leaders to reach common higher ground. This episode has been made possible by a contribution from the Denver Foundation. If you would like to offer feedback about the podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, please email me at mchavez at keystone.org. That's M-C-H-A-V-E-Z at keystone.org. If you would like to learn more about the Keystone Policy Center, visit our website at keystone.org.